Romans 7, beginning at verse 7. This is God's holy and infallible word. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Certainly not. Indeed, I would not have known what sin was except through the law. For I would not have known what covening really was if the law had not said, do not covet. But sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. For apart from law, sin is dead. Once I was alive apart from law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life and I died. I found that the very commandment that was intended to bring life actually brought death. For sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, deceived me and through the commandment put me to death. So then the law is holy and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then become death to me? By no means. But in order that sin might be recognized as sin, it produced death in me through what was good, so that through the commandment, sin might become utterly sinful. And that's actually where we're going to stop tonight, though I know there's more up there. Just go on the next screen once, if you would, Ryan. My one back. Verse 15 is what I'm looking for. Yeah, one forward. So, my original plan was to preach from Romans 7, 7 through all the way to the end of the chapter. And it was, and I was like, this is what we're going to focus on. I do not understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. If I do what I do not want to do, I agree the law is good. And you're perhaps familiar with these verses. And I, was, I am very familiar um, but as I studied these verses more and more, I realized that verses 7 through 13, which I was quite unfamiliar with and are very kind of challenging, have some very interesting and helpful material for us. And, and just as an aside, this is why we as pastors go through books of the Bible verse by verse. It's so we're not just picking topics and our favorite passages so that hopefully the full counsel of God comes to the people. So we're going to focus on these verses. Tim Keller uh, had some very interesting stuff to say um, that brought it out to me, and I'm, ho- I'm hopeful will be powerful and helpful to you. There's a long history of using military language to talk about our faith. And, and you see that reflected in, in a lot of hymns, a lot of worship songs, onward Christian soldiers, a mighty fortress is our God, the battle hymn of the republic, the battle belongs to the Lord, victory in Jesus, I surrender all. Chris Tomlin's song, White Flag, that's a newer song, it keeps up that tradition when it starts out with the words, the battle rages on. And the reason for songs like this, of course, is that the Bible uses military language. In the Old Testament, we have actual warfare and battles, especially when the children of Israel enter into the promised land in the book of Joshua. 
And then in the New Testament, military language is used to explain spiritual warfare. We talk about our battle against the world, against the devil and his schemes, the battle against our own sinful nature, and the description of the armor of God in Ephesians 6 especially comes to mind. Now, our verses don't use that type of language directly, but I really think that that familiar language to us can help us understand these verses about the law and about sin that the NIV uses the heading struggling with sin for. Maybe you saw that in your Bible, struggling with sin. That's not military language, but you can see why that might come to mind. The theme of a battle raging, I believe, will help us see tonight what God is saying to us as people in these verses. Paul has written about God's law and his commandments before in Romans, but he's doing something different. He's doing something unique in our verses. He's showing us here how God uses the law to wake us up to battle our sinful nature. The law wakes us up to battle the sinful nature. Usually you want to avoid a battle and a fight in a war, but not in this case. We must be in battle with sin. If someone is not in battle with their sin, it means they're unaware of sin and the devil. It would mean that they're clueless of all that Paul talks about in the beginning of the book, that the wrath of God is being revealed against the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth. If someone is not in this battle, it means they're content with the status quo. The status quo is how we are born, in sin, with Satan as our master. So you want to be engaged in the spiritual battle that Scripture tells us about. The law of God has an important role in all of this, is what's going on in our verses. In verse 7, based on what Paul had just said, Paul says, is the law sin? He's sort of asking, is, is the law a problem? Is the law part of the old way? And he says, certainly not. No way. And then he explains the way the law functions in our lives as believers. He's saying there's nothing wrong with God's law. In fact, it's good, according to verses 12 and 13. And those psalms we sang talk about the goodness of the law of God, something we don't say very readily anymore, and I think it's a shame. But God's law is good. We delight in it. And it's because the commandments serve to bring us into battle with sin. So that's sort of the big picture tonight. We're going to look at the details of how the law brings us into this war that we should be waging as believers with sin. First, and this point is up here already, the law defines sin. The law defines sin. Verse 7 I would not know what sin was except through the law. Sin 
This thing in us that demands God's wrath can't be known, it can't be defined except through the commandments of God. I would not have known what coveting really was unless the law had said, do not covet. We don't know sin or goodness, for that matter, without God's law. What it means to love God and love our neighbor needs to come from God's word. And sure, people can and do sort of come up in their own minds with definitions of, of, of what's a good person, what is a bad person, and we can pretend, I guess, that those are helpful and sufficient, but they don't do us any good unless we have the right definitions. We need God to define these things. God who created us, the universe, and morality, right and wrong, only his definitions are right. The law of God, the commandments, outline sin, like coveting in the 10th commandment and all the others too. My oldest, uh, Olivia, I think she's in the nursery tonight, she's been playing softball at Timothy this spring. Some of you have been asking about my tan. Actually, a lot of you said your face looks really red. I consider it a tan. It comes from watching softball games the last two or three Saturdays. I I know softball and baseball sort of in general, but I don't, you know, Cubs are my team, but I can't say I actually really ever watch, watch too much. And I've never played baseball or softball, so there's def, there are rules I don't know about. And so I need a little help from others who know the rules better than me. Like I learned this season that if the catcher drops the ball on the third strike, the batter can run to first base. Is that right, Sarah? Okay. I didn't, I didn't know that. And there are other things, too. Like, I just learned this infield fly rule. I didn't know that. So you guys are all thinking, yeah, you really don't know baseball. <laughs> I'm, being, I'm being open here. I'm being honest. And, it, and it's all very fascinating to me. It's all the more fascinating because I got my daughter out there playing the game, right? That's a lot of fun. But the fact is, there are rules of the game. And I could sit there as a spectator and think, well, that rule's kind of silly, or why do they do that, or they should change that rule. But it doesn't matter. There's some official rule book for girls' high school softball that defines how the game is played. And it's a good thing, too, or there'd be complete chaos on the field. Our Creator created everything, including the rules of morality. Right and wrong, they're revealed to us. They're defined by the Ten Commandments, and those Ten Commandments are further elaborated in Scripture in many places. Furthermore, so the law defines sin, and the law reveals sin in us, secondly. It's not just that the law defines sin. That's the second point. Please. The law reveals sin in us. It's not just that the law defines it, but it shows it residing in us. And that's jumping ahead to verse 13. Paul writes, in order that sin might be recognized as sin. And of course, Paul's whole point in bringing all of this to us is to tell us that he's realized that he's a sinner. So through the law, we know what sin is. 
And a natural consequence of that is that we'll then know that it's in each one of our hearts and lives, and then we'll see how much we need Jesus. But then somehow it's more than that. In addition, the law activates sin, which is our third point, which is very interesting. It stirs it up somehow. Verse 8 and 9, sin, seizing the opportunity afforded by the commandment, produced in me every kind of covetous desire. Apart from the law, sin is dead. I was alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin sprang to life. Isn't that kind of weird? The Bible seems to be saying that as Paul read the law, His life got very sinful. His life almost got worse. And then he could really, really see his sinfulness and his need. Well, how in the world is that? Tim Keller suggests that it has to do with how perverse our hearts are on their own. We we want to do something sometimes just because it's wrong. We can have a joy in wrongdoing for its own sake. So when we hear a command not to do something, we can get a little urge to want to do it. The commands cause our innate perversity to want to take over. We figure that out? Seems a little distracting. No? Everyone okay? Okay, we'll move forward. Some of you know that my youngest, Adriana, has got a problem with candy. (laughs) She's getting better. We're working with her on it. It's a good, one good first step is she knows she has a problem. In fact, just a few weeks ago, there was some candy on the kitchen counter. She saw it, looked at it longingly, and said, Mom, you better put that high up. <laughs> now, here's, here's the thing. If we tell her outright, do not eat this candy, we know and she knows that's going to stir up her default perversity to eat as much of that candy as she can the first chance she can do it. And so it's almost better sometimes not to say don't do it because otherwise the idea is planted in her mind. And so I wonder if that's a little bit what's going on. And parents have learned this with their kids. If you mention the thing they shouldn't do, it will put the idea in their mind and they might try to do it. So it can be smarter just to leave it be. While seeing a little kid's disobedient nature kick in, when asked to smile for the camera, they won't do it. And sometimes you can get them to do it by saying, don't you smile. And so you have to say the opposite to get them to do what you want them to do. And that is how sin is. The law, the command, God saying, do this, don't do that. It can activate our disobedience in that sense. And we can see this with teenagers sometimes. Sometimes teenagers rebel just to rebel. And we'd be foolish to think that that does not happen to us as adults, too, sometimes. The great 
church father Augustine tells in his book, The Confessions, how there was one time in the middle of the night with some friends, he shook, this was, I guess, really sort of a rebellious thing in those days, he, he shook pear trees with his friends in the middle of the night and carried the ripe pears away. If only thing, it was as innocent as that today. But he, this is what he says about it, and it's very interesting. He says, we may, be, we may be tasted a few, but the rest we just gave to the pigs. Our real pleasure was simply in doing something that was not allowed. We had plenty of fruit of our own in our own homes. We only took these to be thieves. And he writes, once I had taken them, I threw them away, and all I tasted in them was my own iniquity, my own sin, which I enjoyed very much. So Augustine's experience with the pear tree and his friends and his study of Scripture showed that the underlying ultimate motive of sin is to do it just because it's sin. We want to be in charge of the world, and we want to be in charge of our lives and do what we want and play God. We want to rebel. We want to be our own sovereign. We want to be all-powerful. And every single law God lays down, it's an infringement on our own power. It's an infringement on our own sovereignty, and it prevents us from living as we wish, as we want to on our own, and our sinful nature wants to resist that. The very first temptation was, you will be like God, and Eve went for it. It's the essence of the first sin and of all of our sinning. And so Paul is saying there's a sense in which the law activates our sin. We see what we're not supposed to do, and we want to do exactly that. Along the way, we might say that the law furthermore Fourthly, kills any sense of our own spiritual successes. It kills any sense of our own spiritual successes. At the end of verse 9, Paul says, Sin sprang to life and I died. So this is getting to be, you know, what does he mean that he died? Well, he says he was alive apart from the law which means that he had never really truly seen the law's real demands. Maybe he saw previously a bunch of rules, and then growing up a good Jewish boy, he thought he was following them. So it was his own false perception that he was alive. He felt that he was pleasing God, satisfying him, but it was only because he was ignorant of what the law was really asking for. And so when the commandment came, I died, writes Paul. Something happened to him, so he realized he wasn't pleasing God at all, but instead was under God's condemnation. He's saying, I thought I was doing quite well spiritually. I felt good or better than most people around me, but then I was overwhelmed with the sense of failure and condemnation. Why that change? Feeling great about his life, but then convicted. The law. That's the change. Verse 9. Because the commandment came. 
And it's interesting, it says the commandment came because the commandment came centuries ago. He must mean not that it came for the very first time, but the commandments finally came home to him. Something clicked. He understood them. He understood what was going on. He came under conviction of sin. He finally realized the seriousness of the situation. He was dead, condemned, lost because of his complete failure, his inability to keep the law of God. He had been a proud Pharisee, sure of his standing before God until now. And in that sense, he died. In that sense, the law brought death. The law kills our own sense of our own spiritual success. One more final piece to all this, something important for Paul in his words here and for all of us is that the law is not just about externals. It's especially about the heart. And I think that's why, and that's our fifth point tonight, I think that's why of all the commandments, Paul mentions the tenth, do not covet Paul was a Pharisee, and Jesus often brought up how they seemed to only think of sin in terms of external actions. As long as you didn't perform an evil act, you were not guilty of sin. And if you think about it, if that's how you looked at sin, you might think you're doing all right. You might think you're a pretty law-abiding citizen before God. I mean, you kind of look through the commandments and say, I'm not a thief. I never stole anything from a store. I haven't cheated on my spouse. I haven't murdered anybody. I know God's the only true God, and I worship him. You could tick off each one of the commands, and if you kind of think just externally on the surface level, like Paul did, you would say, I'm, I'm spiritually alive. I'm all right. Until you come to the 10th commandment. And I think that's especially why the 10th commandment is there. That's the only one that you for sure definitely can't reduce to external action. It's all about our inward attitudes and heart issues. In fact, I want us just to take a look real quick at the Catechism's description of the 10th commandment. It's question and answer 113 in the back of the Blue Psalter hymnal. Question and answer 113. And it's on page 56. 56 in the back section of the blue hymnal. Of course, all of the commandments, as Jesus explained them, have to do with the heart. But again, just on the surface level, reading them, you might think, I'm not a murderer. I'm not doing this or that. But the 10th commandment makes sure that we understand that it's not externals only. Question 113, what is God's will for us in the 10th commandment? This is what our catechism says the 10th commandment is about coveting. This is it, that not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in my heart. Rather, with all my heart, I should always hate sin and take pleasure in whatever is right. So you get that? This is the 10th commandment. That not even the slightest thought or desire contrary to any one of God's commandments should ever arise in my heart. So Paul had never understood sin as a matter of 
inward longings, idolatrous drives, desires. He just saw sin as violating rules until he truly understood the tenth. Externally, we could be quite good, but when you add the heart, when you add the internal stuff, we could never be anything but sinners. And so, all of this that Paul is telling us the law is doing is good. This is very, very good that the law does these things, which it all sounds kind of harsh, and, but this is good. It doesn't seem like it on the surface. The law showing us what sin is, the law showing us that sin's in each one of us, show, you know, so much so that it, it actually activates sin in our lives, that it kills any sense of our spiritual success because it includes all the stuff on the inside as well as what people say on the outside. That's all good, and we should give thanks for God's law and what it does because that's how we know our need for God's grace. That's how we know, yeah, We really need Jesus, not just that murderer, not just these terrible people we hear about on TV. Everybody, me too. I grew up in a Christian home. I need Jesus. I need Jesus. And then then when we, we turn to Jesus, he gives us a new heart. And then the battle against sin and the old nature begins in our lives. And again, that's good because the alternative to the battle is to live at peace with sin and at peace with the devil and to be content with that. So we want to come to the point of knowing our sin, receiving Jesus, receiving the new nature, and then we move forward battling sin in our lives. And that's where we're going to pick it up at verse 14. That's what those other verses are about. We'll finish the chapter. We'll look very closely to see what the battle we're waging looks like in our lives and hearts, and and we'll see how the battle is ultimately won by Jesus. And that's going to be in two weeks, because next Sunday night is the Memorial Day hymn sing. So we'll finish the chapter talking about the actual battle that we're called to wage and that we will ultimately be the victor in because of Jesus.